neighborhood in Forney where we live, we have a neighborhood bully. I'll call her Jill, even though Jill's not her real name. And Jill is eight years old, younger than our daughter Sarah, and she lives down the street from us. One thing about Jill is that she's possessive. If her friend Mary is playing with us at our house, Jill will come over and take Mary away, leaving us wondering what happened. Jill's also mean. One time she got the younger girls to sit with her on her side of the street, and as we all played in the street and minded our own business, she got her cadre of younger girls to shout out names at us and to tell us to get off our property. I could go on and on. It's, uh, in some ways, it's made for a very long summer on Vassar Street. But to suffice it to say, most of our encounters with Jill leave us feeling angry and hurt. I also learned that, that this little girl went to the church, to the large Baptist church not too far from our house, and so the day after she taunted my daughters on the school bus, I seized my opportunity. I approached her by name and said, Do you know the story of Jesus? She looked at me almost surprised. She doesn't normally pay attention to adults and sometimes can actually back talk us, but this time I knew I had her attention. Well, do you remember what Jesus taught us? To do unto others as you want them to have done to you? And she grudgingly gave her acknowledgement that she had heard that before. Well, I said, that's the way we do things at our house, and that's how we play with our friends. And if you want to be a friend and play with us, that's what the expectation is. That's how things are on this end of the street. Well, could I make Jill, the neighborhood bully, see that the way that she acts is hurtful? Maybe, maybe not, probably not. Could I make her change and be nicer and more loving? Certainly I can't control her behavior. But all I could do, and what we talked about as a family was to be responsible for the way that we would respond to her evil. We decided not to call her names or to throw things at her or to pull her hair or to egg her house. We came up with all types of schemes, but decided not to return evil for evil, but to try, to try to love her and forgive her and to have compassion on her. Because if she at eight years old thinks that this is the way life works, she is going to have a tough road. I'm not sure that we're really loving her or forgiving her fully, but that's the path that we are on. Love and forgiveness. And surely it is the road less traveled and an extremely difficult journey to learn even at a young age. One of the things that we talked about around the dinner table, there's always going to be a neighborhood bully. How will we respond? Well, we know the golden rule as Jesus taught us in Matthew 
12, do to others as you want done to you. Returning evil for evil, then, is either a direct rejection of Jesus' teaching, or it is some type of an admission that you perversely invite evil back into your life and therefore perpetuate the cycle of violence which begets more violence. There is a reason that return to no person evil for evil follows the phrase in our, in our charge, hold on to what is good. Because one of the key ways that we hold on to what is good is to not take vengeance, no retribution, no condemnation. And it's like this is so utterly difficult for us, and it's so counter to our human nature that it deserves its own phrase within the charge. And as Barbara pointed out so well in her time with the children, we resist this teaching because we associate it with being weak, and we also associate this with doing nothing. It's very deep within our human nature that we want to retaliate so that we can show that we are strong and we are powerful. We're the king of the world, or at least the, the queen of the neighborhood. But the Bible never says that we should acquiesce to violence or abuse and be grateful. And certainly in cases of domestic abuse, we have often misused the Bible to perpetuate abuse within the home, and Lord have mercy on us when we have done that. But the Bible never says not to stand up to injustice. No, the Bible is not saying that at all. It simply says, don't take vengeance. Don't use violence to resist the violence that's done to you. Instead, be a blessing. And one of the many reasons that is given to us by Jesus, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, this makes you a child of God. Whereas returning evil to evildoers makes you a child of violence, a child of hatred, a child of evil. Leviticus 19 further illustrates the point about this is not a sign of weakness. Because there it says, you shall reprove your fellow and not bear guilt because of him. This means that when the neighborhood bully acts out, you don't go run and hide in your house, but you stand up and reprove the bully. You call them on it as if to say, The way that you're treating me is not right and it's not good. However, I'm not going to treat you the same way that you're treating me. And what the scripture is teaching us is that if we don't point out violence and evil and sin and call it for what it is, then we allow it to grow and to control us. And the guilt then becomes on our backs as well, or like luggage that we lug around with us all the time. For forgiveness never says that the sin was not real. It doesn't make the act that was done against you okay. 
But what forgiveness does do is it says, I'm not going to hold on to your evil and make your sin my sin. Think about how when someone does us wrong, how how much time is consumed in our brains when we sit at home and we replay that sin over and over in our minds. That's retaining the sin and adopting that guilt and making it our own. And what forgiveness does is it gets us out of that violent cycle. Call evil for evil. Expose it and bring it to the light. So rather than this being a sign of weakness or a sign of doing nothing, it actually is a sign of great courage. And our charge also exhorts us to what? Be of good courage. And if we can pray for the courage to return to no person evil for evil, do we also have the courage to apply this to our national politics and foreign affairs? Is it naive to apply scriptural wisdom to tomorrow's vote on limited military strikes in Syria? Admittedly, this is a very complicated situation. But just because we don't know the right answers doesn't mean that we can't ask the difficult questions. Why is it that our first response to violence is to respond with violence? Why is a military strike in Syria our first response and not a last resort? Why are we so hell-bent on punishment What lesson does that teach? Or could it be that punishment and revenge simply creates more neighborhood bullies? And if our moral credibility is on the line as our president insists, then why just Syria? Why not intervene militarily in all humanitarian catastrophes? Why are we so vested in that region and we really don't care much or even see videos about what happens in other places, in the continent of Africa, Rwanda, Congo, Sudan, all of these places that yeah, makes you wonder, well, what is our motivation? What tail is wagging the dog? The leaders of the Presbyterian churches in Syria and Lebanon have written a letter to us as Presbyterians in the PCUSA And they have asked us not only to pray for them and the situation, but also to do what we can to ask our own government to not strike militarily in that country. So can we as Christians listen to our Christian friends in Syria and trust their insight? I know this is not something upon which we all will agree. But can we at least let the Bible be the basis for our discussion and let its witness confront us and our preconceptions? And Lord knows we got to get beyond the fact of saying, well, yeah, Jesus did say to love our neighbors, but that neighbor with the barking dog. Yes, but. Jesus didn't say yes, but. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There is no plan B. Do not repay 
evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. Seek to do good to each other and to all. Take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Name the evil and expose it for what it is. That is how you love your neighbor as yourself. But vengeance is reserved for God alone. I am the Lord, it says in Leviticus. Perhaps this is most evident, this way of living is most evident in the witness of the early Christian martyrs. Martyrs were women and men, mostly in the first two to three hundred years after Jesus, who were persecuted and maimed and killed by a repressive government because of their faith. Their witness was recorded in the book that was cherished by Christians for centuries, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it is their witness that we find that they went to their death without calling for revenge. We also see this same thing in the very first martyr, Stephen, as given us in the book of Acts chapter 6 and 7, who went to his death because of his faith, not seeking revenge to repay evil for evil, but with the prayer, Lord, do not hold their sins against them. So if we as Christians want to teach someone a lesson, can we start there? Can we start with a word of love? It is to our detriment that Christians in the United States have in large part lost touch with the fact that our faith is built on the blood of martyrs. The result is that we end up viewing Christianity from the point of view of empire, about maintaining power and privilege and control and protecting our interests. And any time that we are motivated by empire, our politics and ethics get complicated very quickly, admittedly so. But the story of the martyrs reminds us that the Bible was written by people who lived on the bottom people who were subjected to tyranny from repressive governments, and yet they had the courage not to repay in kind. This is hard stuff, isn't it? But I, for one, want children my own and yours to know that Christianity has real-world implications, that what we do here on Sunday morning means something, and that someday when I die, that my children will know that I stood up for what the Bible says, to return to no person evil for evil. So it's not idealism. It's not pie in the sky. It's not liberal do-goodism. It's not hippie peace, love, and all that. It's, you know what this is called? This is called Christianity. And in a world that is desperately caught up in karma, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, what goes around comes around, you get what you deserve. In a world that trains us to pay back our hurts and to teach our debtors a lesson, We are bound by a different ethic. 
The Bible doesn't teach us to say to those, I'm going to get you, buddy. No, the Bible teaches us to say, I'm going to pray for you. And the point is that the basis of our faith is the understanding that Jesus died and rose again so that we may have new life. And if we are true heirs of that grace, how can we in good faith refuse that same grace to others? And if we honor our integrity, as difficult as it is, we can apply that same method to our society, to our politics as well, in the search for international cooperation and peace. A man told his pastor that he had recently had an experience at work that really got him down. A fellow employee had lied about him and had used the opportunity to his own advantage. Later on, an opportunity arose for that man to get back at his co-worker. And when the moment came, he stood there in his office and thought a moment about how delicious it would be to get this co-worker back for what he had done. But then, all of a sudden, the only thing that came to his mind was a phrase that he repeats at the end of every Sunday service. Return to no person, evil for evil. And when he was reminded of that, he knew that he couldn't take that sweet revenge. He said, I just couldn't do it, he told his pastor. I knew it wasn't right. And so it goes. Another martyr liberated from the tyranny of revenge, freed to walk boldly in the world of grace. And may it be so for us and for our neighborhoods and for our nation and world this day, now and forever. Amen.